0: What's up, Wildside besties and baddies? I'm Bailey. And I'm Chelsea. And we're here to walk you through the wild sides From homicides to hosticides and everything in between. We're so glad you're here. So buckle up and enjoy the ride. What's up, guys? Happy Wednesday, Wildsiders. Wildside Wednesday. Um, So... I wanted to start off again by saying thank you so much to the listeners who have left reviews for us on Apple. So we have Indies Birdie, Kimbro1, Milo23Horway, I don't know, uh, Menzi03, and Cameron. You guys are the GOAT. Y'all are W's. We love you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for leaving us a review and you guys are going to get tired of us hearing it, but we never get tired of you guys leaving reviews It makes our heart happy. Yeah. Well, this podcasting is actually a lot of really hard work. Chelsea and I make a lot of time and energy and sacrifices doing this. And so it's just really validating to hear Mm-hmm. Um, not that we do it solely for the validation, I but do. I think to keep us <laughs> but I think to keep us going. Um, like every time I get a review, it's like a little like, okay, we can do this, like we can, we can keep going. It's gonna I be awesome I think I can. I think I can. Chugga 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 yeah. chugga shoot shoot. Yeah, so we appreciate it. And so this episode today, you guys, we're we're not gonna really do any chit chatting, but we're excited because it's our interview week, which means we have our episode today. And then on Friday, we have a really cool interview with our buddy Luke Jevney, who's out of Alberta, Canada. And so cool. that's gonna be dropping on Friday. The you wanna talk about a W. Luke. Luke is the real deal. Luke is the real deal. He's so great. I enjoyed him so much. It was such a cool yeah. interview. I'm so excited for you guys to hear it. Yeah. It's really cool. It involves body recovery, so it's going to be a little bit more graphic, but it really opens up a whole like world of specialized expertise that a lot of people don't know about yeah and graphic I would say but more in like the medical yeah medical professional graphic, way yeah not for medical sure. professional like it's it's um yeah I like it's not I wouldn't even say I wouldn't even say gory necessarily it, it's no, just we just again, talk about the reality of of in the nature of what he does and I think it's the nature of it is it is fairly graphic. And right. so, yeah, because he's underwater body recovery. Yeah. So. Um, And I just want to say, like, I was so disappointed. Usually whenever we do interviews, I've, I'm we're learning as we go. But I have learned to start recording before our interviewees get on because Chelsea, the stuff that comes out of her mouth is so funny. And (laughs) at the beginning of this interview with Luke, and I'm so sad that we don't have it recorded, but they were chit-chatting and she was asking him about his weather up there in Alberta. And of course he's like, it's negative 50 degrees. And Chelsea was like, blink twice if you're okay or if you've been kidnapped because surely nobody on their own volition would live up there in that weather and so if your captors are listening and you don't want them to know blink twice and he like blinked twice and he was just like please come help me and it was hysterical um but and he's such a good sport like he was so much fun and i think we're all besties now because we text all the time I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. And that goes for any of you. If you, if you are held, being held captive in negative 50 degree Fahrenheit weather. And well, don't need, blink because we will not know. <laughs> no, I, but I was going to say email us and we'll send out a search and rescue for you because yeah. there's truly no way. Absolutely. There's a thousand percent no way that you're living there on your own accord. Yeah. Yeah. So. so- It'll be really cool. I think you guys will really like this interview. We had so much fun doing it, but um, for the case today ties into kind of Luke's specialty, if you will. And so it'll shine some light in what he does. And then you'll get to hear from him regarding some of the details of the dynamic of this case that we're going to be covering Mm -hmm. And so I think I'm just going to, we're just going to kind of like jump right into this because this case is so, I had so much, I don't know if fun is the right word, typing this case up and I was like, oh, you know, like it'll just be like eight pages. I'll make it short and sweet to the point and literally I'm looking at the 13 number on my Microsoft Word. (laughs) So it is 13 pages long because I, I feel like every... Detail of information needs to be included in these cases, and that's why they end up being like an hour and 20 minutes, and I just don't know how to cut things down because I think it's important, you know? Um, Side note, do you hear that whimpering in the background by chance? Yeah. So do you know, well, you know, but I'll I'll let let our listeners in on a bucket list checkoff, and I found a puppy on the road, Mm -hmm. bucket list checkoff. It's really okay. cute, too. That's real cute. Yeah. I'm just, so unfortunately I'm for it. you guys, we're going to edit out the cuteness of the puppy. So. You suck. <laughs> yeah. Fine. Okay. Talk about your case. So just as like a small disclaimer for this episode, there was it's a really confusing timeline. It was for me. There's a lot of kind of legal jargon that I just didn't quite understand and like legal dynamics. So I did my best, but I actually ended up purchasing the book that I referred to a whole lot in this story, and it's actually uh, Stephen Jackson's book, No Stone Unturned: The True Story of the World's Premier Forensic Investigators. Hmm. And it's a fabulous book. I've just read the I've just read the part of it on this case. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be referring to it a lot. I'm not going to use the title. I use the title then, but when I say Steve Jackson, that's his book that I'm referring to. Okay. Cool? Yes. All Do right. Do I need to take notes on like to keep up with your timeline? No, I think I made it keep upable enough. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Are you so excited? Are you ready for it? I'm so excited. I'm really excited about this case. Like I think it's kind of sad, but I think it, it has a sad ending, but it has a really good ending at the same time. Okay. I'm also more good uplifting. Endings. Yeah, yeah, I'm all for good endings. So I'm going to take us to the central United States for mm-hmm. this episode. Okay. Heartland. The Heartland. Yeah, I just think of that George Street movie when you say that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Maryville is a small quaint town in central Missouri. In the late 80s, Maryville's population was only about 10,000 people. Despite it being a smaller town, it did have a massive methamphetamine problem, though. At the center of it was a small-town wannabe gangster by the name of Tony Emery. Mm. Emery was well-known to local law enforcement due to his violent tendencies and his love for all things illegal. Mm. We already love this type of dude so much, don't we? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm a hustler, baby. (laughs) I just want you to know. And when you see, like, if you look his picture up in his book it's like typical, like, 80s mustache. And that's exactly the song that should go with it. Mm -hmm. So just to kind of shine some light on who this dude was, he was suspected of shooting up a local prosecutor's house. He allegedly set fire to a boss's home after he was fired from a construction job. Mm Mm-hmm. This is a salty dude. Yeah, 100%. He blew up a local trash hauling business competitor. So a business competitor's (laughs) truck. He blew it up with dynamite. Okay. He was tied to numerous burglaries, assaults, and car thefts. So Emery also known for all that stuff, he was the local kind of meth kingpin, okay? Does he look like Billy from Stranger Things? Yes. Yes. It's, yeah. He does not as not as attractive, but definitely up there. Emery had a again as I said a vicious reputation and had earned himself notoriety around town by using any means necessary to avoid facing any consequences. That included violence, intimidation, drug brides, and exploitation. So he was just I put in here he was capital B A D. Yes, he yes, B A D. Emery was determined to make an like a niche for himself in the drug industry in Maryville. And it I mean, it paid off. It paid for his lavish, flashy lifestyle. Mm. So he was at the top of the food chain. Mm. Did he have so, a transam? I bet he had a transam. I don't know. And he had a cherry red transam with a t-top down, probably his muscle shirt. Oh, I can I can just smell it, probably. I can feel it. Yeah. So even though he was a very well known criminal in Maryville, police could never catch him on charges significant enough to stick. Mm. So he would just pay the bail, right, and walk out. Like most loser drug dealing criminals with fragile egos. Emery had his henchmen who were loyal to him and kept things running for him. And in exchange, he would supply them with meth, money, and protection through their affiliations with him, right? Mm-hmm. So Emery was at the top of this Maryville meth totem pole who supplied meth to many of the other small time dealers and users. In 1989, 30, a 32-year-old woman by the name Christine Elkins was living in Maryville as a single mother struggling with a pretty gnarly meth addiction. Christine's youngest son, Stephen, he was seven, and he lived with her, but she had an older son, Jeremy, he was 15, and he lived in Vegas with his dad. It was reported that one of the primary contributing factors to this and why Jeremy lived with his dad was because Christine's meth addiction had become to ravage her life, leaving her with little self-confidence, hope, or financial resources. I've never heard a cast of more 80s names than like Christine and Jeremy. Yeah. (laughs) It was reported, however, that even though Christine was in active meth addiction, she did do her best to care for her youngest son who remained with her in Missouri. He always had food, clean clothes, and a roof over his head. She worked as a waitress at a restaurant bar lounge, barely making ends meet, but somehow she was able to barely keep it together, take care of her son, pay for housing, and pay for her Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme that she had. I think it's no surprise that because of this, Christine, as many people do who struggle with addiction, unfortunately she turned to drugs as a way to cope. Mm -hmm. She had developed a major methamphetamine addiction, where she resorted to injecting it between her toes and under her fingernails in order to disguise the the track marks. Mm. Yeah, mm. I I can understand between the toes. I don't understand the under the fingernails. That yeah, that creeps that kind of, that kind of creeps me out. I'm not gonna lie. That's yeah. that's a little that's a little cringy for me. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't long before the meth really took over christine's life she had become thin and a burned out shell of her former self as many people do Mm -hmm. and as it does being that deep in your addiction it it creates a level of desperation that most of us can't understand Mm -hmm. people often resort to lying cheating stealing manipulating just so they can get their next fix and get their next high christine elkins was not immune from this either Unfortunately for her, she got wrapped up in Emory's circle as a dealer for him. Mm-hmm. So we know how bad of a dude Emory was. And because of her addiction, she kind of got in the inner circle of his little ring that he had going. Right. She worked as a dealer for Emory for years. And in 1989, this is where things started to kind of take a turn. She ended up selling twice to undercover police Mm. once was to a notaway county sheriff's department informant and once was to a missouri state highway patrol informant the third attempted sale she was arrested and charged so this is unfortunately where christine now would be used as a pawn in law enforcement's plans to try to bring down emory oh okay yeah so she was given an ultimatum You can either go to prison for a long, long time and never see your son again, or you can be a confidential informant for us to try to bring down Tony Emery. Okay. She was convinced by authorities that they would ask for leniency with the possibility of zero jail time and that she wouldn't have to be away from her son if she agreed to this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Christine agreed. And she became a federal informant for the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, so the BATF. I feel like this is the plot of a Denzel Washington or Mark Wahlberg movie. Yeah, for sure. Like, I'm pretty sure I've already seen at least three of these movies starring at least Mark Wahlberg or Denzel Washington. Yeah, I can see it. They're kind of my favorite movies, but yeah, I can see where you're going with this. And just for future reference, I'm not going to call it the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. I'll just refer to it as the BATF. Mm -hmm. This agreement will mark the beginning of a seven-year-long mystery that rocked the small town of Maryville, Missouri. Seven years? Seven years. What year is it? That's crazy. So stuck between a rock and a hard spot in her role as a federal informant, Christine would go on to give the BATF substantial information about Emory, about his illegal criminal activities, and she agreed that she would ultimately testify against him. Okay. So sh- soon after this, she and BATF agents would attempt to record conversations with Emery about drug trafficking on a micro cassette recorder provided by the BATF. So she's essentially doing like undercover informant stuff. Right, right. Over the next several months, law enforcement officials arranged phone calls and drug deals between Christine and Emery, where each interaction was recorded or involved Christine wearing a wire. Okay. However, it was reported that during one planned meeting, Emory became aware of the presence of the BATF agent and state officer surveilling the interaction. Mm -hmm. Now, this just gives you an idea of this guy. He approached the vehicle, squatted down in front of them, stared at them, and then walked away. (laughs) Emory wanted to show that he was not intimidated by them and he wouldn't go down that easy. According to Steve Jackson's book, while executing a warrant for Emery's home, soon after soon after this exchange, law enforcement officials found the nine hundred dollars in marked currency that the informants had paid to Christine, and now it was tied to Emery. So they used kind of like fishing money, mm-hmm. right? And so mm-hmm. when they found it at Emery's home, that was proof that he was involved in meth trafficking right 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 they also found a stash of weapons mostly firearms which were illegal for him to have since he was a felon mm-hmm. so he was arrested and was facing some pretty significant charges however emory quickly made bond and walked out of the maryville courthouse what's interesting is that emory knew that christine had set him up And he knew that she was the key witness in the prosecution's case against him on drug charges. But despite this, he continued selling to her. It was an indication maybe either of his stupidity or his arrogance, as well as his thrill of the cat and mouse game with law enforcement. I was going to say, or just sheer ego. Mm Mm-hmm. It was believed that Emery was confident that he'd be able to convince Christine out of testifying at his trial, which was slated for August 10th of 1990. Okay. So this was August of 89. It was slated for the next year. Okay. But despite this, it became evident pretty quickly that Christine didn't want to go to prison and leave her son, so she wasn't going to back out on the deal she had made with investigators as being the informant. Right? Christine maintained her informant role multiple times between 1989 and the summer of 1990. Christine met up with Emory each time being wired to try and obtain more evidence for federal prosecutors to finally make sure that charges stuck with Emory. So that's what I mean is like kind of using her as a pawn. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, but that's literally what informants are used as, right? Right. But, It was suspected that when these interactions was happening, and while Christine was wired, she would hint at Emery using body language and hand gestures that she was wired. Mm -hmm. So it seemed as if she were playing both sides of the fiddle, if you will. Kind of a double agent. Yeah. So this pissed Emery off, to say the least, but he knew he was being watched, so he had no choice but to keep his cool. While she was acting as a federal informant, Emory continued his guise of helping out Christine in the form of bribery. He had given her free drugs and an upwards of $2,000 to help pay for her attorney fees for her own drug case. Despite this, he was not getting any indications from Christine that would satisfy him that she wouldn't testify against him. She was the only thing standing in the way of him getting off scot-free as she was the only witness against him. So she was in a pretty dangerous position. Knowing that he needed to get rid of the witness, the only witness in this case against him, and being under surveillance by law enforcement, Emory decided to use her vulnerability against her. So in June of 1990, Emory contacted his cousin, Herbert Tug. (laughs) emory and i'm going to refer to him as tug okay please do yeah yes so tug lived up lived up in colorado and emory called his cousin tug to try to get meth from his supplier jw or J.W. watts okay tony emory's the thug he's got his cousin (laughs) Tug, and you've got the meth supplier J.W. J-dub. Okay. Sounds like a really bad nursery rhyme. Yeah. Emory didn't just want any meth, though. He could get that. What he wanted from J-dub was the bottom of the barrel stuff, the really pure and potent meth. All right. Emory figured if he could give Christine this more potent meth, and if she used her regular amount that she normally did she would surely overdose and it would just look like an accident and another addict died fair right yeah and his hands would be clean so tug who was like a brother to tony they were cousins but they grew up together in maryville they were very very close tug agreed and he headed down to maryville with this like super pure form of meth the day after tug arrived Ron Coy, who is a close friend of Tony Emery's, Ron called Christine over to his house. There, he gave her some of the meth, and afraid of her overdosing in the house, he escorted her out. Okay. He was just like, please don't shoot that up here, because that's going to that's gonna create a lot of issues. And so this is what I mean when I was talking about, like, Emery's henchmen, and we're like, who is this Ron dude? It doesn't matter. This is because Tony never had his actual hands involved. Mm -hmm. he would have people do it for him so he was unfortunately pretty smart right so unfortunately this plan did not work Mm -hmm. according to steve jackson in his book the very next day christine shows up to the house cursing him out saying you fucker you tried to kill me she had gotten violently ill from the the batch of meth that he had given her but she did not overdose so turning to his knack for douchebaggery and intimidation, he showed up at the lounge bar where she worked and he threatened her. She had told a friend later that she was terrified of Tony Emery and that he would kill her if she testified, which I mean, she believed. And I he mean, probably right. Would. Yeah, right. Regardless of this. Again, because she was stuck between a rock and a hard spot with police in Emory, she continued to wear wires for the BATF and accepted bribes from Emory. And so this just really made him feel like she was blackmailing him for drugs and money in exchange for her silence. Right. So he would give her meth, give her money. And then she'd be like, well, you know, if I had money or if I had meth, then I wouldn't testify. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm hmm. As Emory's trial date was approaching, he he was not confident that Christine wouldn't testify. And I think, as we can all imagine, Emory was not the kind to take kindly to being blackmailed. Right. This is my town. You can't blackmail me. <laughs> na 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 na. This is my town. Na 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 na. I don't think he's saying it like that. No, oh, I doubt it. So on August 2nd of 1990, so eight days before his approaching court date, Christine contacted ATF Special Agent Mark James to tell him that she had received a call from Emory. She said that he had called and offered to fix her car, give her about $4,000 and some drugs so she could skip out of town before his trial. Agent James warned Christine that this was a setup and that Emery was a dangerous man with a with a motive to have her gone. So he was adamant that she not take on Emery alone, and he was again convinced that she was being set up for a much more nefarious intention than just her skipping town. So Christine initially agreed to wait for Agent James and law enforcement's help before touching base with Emery. But two days after that call on August 4th, she ended up agreeing to meet Tony Emery. Christine had told her former sister-in-law, Tanya Green, that quote, someone was going to help her get out of town before the trial. So that evening on August 4th, she dropped her son, Steven off at her neighbor Mosley's house. Once there, she asked to use his phone to make a call. From what Mosley would end up telling investigators, she was talking to what he believed was going to be Tony Emery. And something about the conversation involved meeting at something about a park. When she hung up, she told Mosley she'd only be gone 10 minutes, and if she wasn't back by then, to look for her in the morgue. Oh, Uh uh-oh. She kissed her son and headed out of the door into the night. Days turned into weeks and weeks turned into months with absolutely no indication of what happened to Christine Elkins. Mm -hmm. Law enforcement, they did not give up on finding her. I think partially because they wanted to find her, but also because they needed her to take Emory down for good. Mm -hmm. Over the years, underline the word years to come, ATF agent Michael Schmidt ATF agent Mark James, supervisory agent Dwayne Nichols, and Maryville PD detective Randy Strong worked endlessly on finding Christine. Eventually, her drug court date came and went, and she was a no-show. So they thought that maybe initially she had just skipped town, but there was no indication of her at all. There was no vehicle. Nobody could find her vehicle. She was very close with her mom, back in Oregon they talked on a regular basis nobody had heard from Christine so they all had feared that she was dead yeah they believed that Emory had killed Christine to keep her quiet and then hid her body in an unknown location the law enforcement personnel working the case believed her to be dead again there was no evidence since their key witness was missing Prosecutors had no other choice but to ask for a continuance for Emory's drug case, and once again, he walked out of the courthouse with a shit-eating grin on his face. Agent James and the other investigators involved in the case knew Emory was behind the murder, but they couldn't charge him. They could not prove it. Since Christine was a federal informant, this was a federal jurisdiction case. There had never been a federal prosecution case without a body— so the DA would not pursue it without proof that Christine had been killed, which means evidence or a body, right. and it would be years and years before there was even the tiniest crack in this case. Golly, isn't this wild? This is this is wild, and I'm sorry. I know you guys are probably used to the way my mind works at this point. So, I guess this neighbor Mosley, you said, yeah. I mean if somebody was like, here's my kid, and if I'm not back in ten minutes, go check the morgue. I don't know if I'd be like, Okay, bye. You know, like I think it would just be like hold no 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 now hold on. Now hold on. Like, does this kid have jammies? Do we have a toothbrush? Yeah, Chelsea. <laughs> but you have to you have to remember context in this stuff. Bailey, She's I a- know it. I know. She's an addict. But but Mosley, I mean, good for Mosley, but you're just going to drop your kid off with Mosley? Yeah. You can't send the kid up to your mom in Oregon? I mean, her frontal lobe is shut down, Chels. Okay. All right. I just need to know if he had jammies. Mosley did end up taking Stephen to his grandparents, his paternal grandparents, so his dad's parents who lived in Maryville still. Okay. And they ended up raising him, so he... Okay. And I am i am going to circle back to this. Okay, fair enough. Okay. So in the fall of 1990, a few months after Christine went missing, a call came from a Greeley police detective in Greeley, Colorado, Ooh. asking Agent James if they had a missing woman on their hands. He continued that they had an informant with information regarding Christine Elkins. This informant was J. Dub Watts. I was going to say it's either Tubbs or Dubs or what's his name? Tug. Tug. It's either Tug or Dubs. J-Dub had been a meth manufacturer, as I said, and he was the supplier for Tug, which was Tony's cousin. Watts was working with law enforcement in an attempt to strike a deal for his own charges from a recent major meth bust that he was involved in. Okay. As part of his deal, he wanted to give information about the Christine Elkins' disappearance in return for leniency around his own drug charges. So in December of 1990, Detective Lynn and Agent James headed to Greeley, Colorado to speak with Jay Watts. There, Watts told investigators that the Emory's were in fact involved in Christine's disappearance, which reaffirmed their suspicions. Watts ended up telling investigators that Tony had told him earlier in the summer about a girl who was a witness and was going to testify against him. And that tug had told him that he had gone back to Maryville and said the quote situation, what the girl had been handled. Mm-hmm. So Watts eventually agreed to wear a wire to try to get information out of his friend tug. There's a lot of wires in this lot, well, Yeah. 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 During the recordings, Tug essentially confessed to the murder of Christine Elkins and acknowledged that he and his cousin, Tony, and an acquaintance by the name of Bobby Miller were involved in killing Christine and then disposing of her body. But those conversations did not specify the location. The words rock quarry kept being brought up in these conversations, but Tug never specified which rock quarry he was talking about. Mm-hmm. With the first potential lead, investigators would begin searching rock quarries in and around Maryville for Christine and her Oldsmobile in hopes of not only finding her, but with finding her, having the evidence that they needed to put the Emory's away for good. So a couple of weeks after that, Tony Emery and his friend Ron Coy flew out to Colorado to meet up with Tug and good old informant Watts. hmm They were going to set up a major drug deal together. Unbeknownst to the Emerys and Coy, this was a sting operation. As soon as the deal happened, the Emerys and Ron Coy were arrested, and now at this point in December of 1990, they were facing up to 20 years in prison. Which is baffling that it's up to, up to 20 years for yeah. all this. All these shenanigans. Mm -hmm. Investigators finally had a foot in, hopefully to be able to obtain information about Christine Elkins' disappearance. But Tony Emery and Ron Coy would not budge, wouldn't talk. (laughs) Tug, on the other hand, was a different story. Tug wanted to make a deal. In exchange for providing investigators with information about Christine's remains in her whereabouts he wanted all charges related to her murder and his drug bust dropped okay this was too steep of an ask and prosecutors absolutely refused i was gonna say i'd be like uh no sir try again next next attempt so since they denied that he wouldn't talk no more talkie talkie from old Tug. That's right. So in March of 1991, Tug and Coy were sentenced to seven years, and Emory was sentenced to 10 years, give or take, roughly. Even though the Emory's were behind bars, law enforcement personnel weren't satisfied for the time the three men would serve, and they were no closer to figuring out what had happened to Christine. Mm-hmm. Just as a part here, this is where it got really confusing to me. And I spent a lot of time trying to straighten out this timeline because there was a lot of information about the DA in Colorado, federal versus state, Maryville, Kansas City. Like there was just a lot going on. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: A lot of parties involved.
0: There was a lot of parties involved and there was like state issues versus federal issues. Federal doesn't charge certain things. Right. Right. But they didn't want state charges. They wanted federal charges. Right. So there was a lot of like chess, if you will, almost yeah. like legal chess. So Mike Schmidt, he was kind of a, a bulldog on this case. He kept going to the Colorado DA's office, DA Green. And Mike saying, was located in Maryville. Yeah. Is he right? was the yeah, he's the BATF agent. Okay. They're in Maryville. Okay. So he was trying to talk to District Attorney Green and and pushing for charging at least Tug, saying that there had to be a precedent of some sort of trying someone for a homicide in a federal court without there being a body. Mm. But it had never been done. Mm. They had charged people on state levels without a body, but it had never been done in federal, and no DA or prosecutor wanted to touch that with a ten foot pole. I yeah, I was gonna say that's uncharted waters, and yeah. it like their reputations, and yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot going on, and not to mention it's one of those it's one of those things that you kind of only get one shot to do right. that. That's true, and so the DA kept just pushing back he was like no he pushed back and was emphatic that they only got one chance and they needed the body mm-hmm. so they kept looking there were numerous law enforcement personnel committed to finding christine just some of the names some of the main players over the years was mike schmidt randy strong lieutenant ron christian and patrolman bob sepal of the maryville pd Deputy Harley Renninger of the Sheriff's Office and Dennis Randall with the Missouri State Water Patrol, who was in on every quarry search. So there was a lot of people from a lot of different agencies working mm-hmm. together to figure this out. Mm-hmm. They kept going after the quarry piece because that was the only piece of information they had about potentially where she was. Right. Only real, if you'd say, lead, maybe. Yes. So they ended up extending their quarry searches to Iowa, Nebraska, and Kansas. Mm. They spent every spare minute they had continuing to look for Christine. They had no other options but just to keep searching the endless rock quarries in and around Maryville, Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas, in hopes that they, under some miracle, found her. But Mm -hmm. they just found nothing. Nothing. It's like she and her car completely vanished and nobody had seen her since yeah. August 4th of 1990. So, Agent Schmidt and Detective Strong continued to work the case. They spoke to every known associate of Christine Elkins and the Emory's, hoping to get any information they could. They received some information, but really needed Tug's information as they were convinced he was the key in finding Christine, because Tony and Coy were not talking. Mm -hmm. after working tirelessly on the case for several years atf agent mike schmidt was able to put together a cold case review and along with maryville detective randy strong they were both able to gather enough circumstantial evidence to convince the da to charge tug with christine elkins's murder Mm. all right if you say so herbert tug emery was indicted by a federal jury And the second time when confronted with this, Tug made it clear he did not want to take the fall alone. So he decided to turn States evidence. They would eventually end up interviewing Bobby Miller, that associate that Watts had Mm -hmm. told investigators was a part of that mess to try to obtain information about Christine and that whole situation. District Attorney Green finally warmed up to the idea of providing Miller immunity in his potential involvement in Christine's murder in exchange for the details of what happened, because there was no other option. Miller agreed, and he sang like a birdie. Mm -hmm. Miller told investigators that Tony's initial plan was to rent a truck and purchase a five-gallon barrel, a 55-gallon barrel. Mm Mm-hmm. They would kill Christine, put her in the fifty-five gallon barrel, fill it with mm-hmm. cement, and then Miller and Tug would drive it back to Colorado and dispose of it up there. Dang! Wasn't Tony Junko found? Wasn't Junco found in yes. a cement, like in a in a fifty-five gallon drum with cement? Yes. Golly, that must have been the go-to in the eighties and nineties. There was also another case. Man, this was the '50s or '60s, I think, that this uh, this factory owner had an affair with a, a woman who had immigrated, I think, from the Philippines, and she ended up getting pregnant. Oh, and he killed her and stuffed her in a barrel and kept him in the basement of his house for oh. fifty years. Mm-hmm. And then the family moved, and I guess he was just like, "It's fine. Nobody's going to check." <laughs> And they ended up finding her, and she had her pocketbook with contacts, and they ended up, that's how they ended up identifying her. But it was a 55-gallon barrel also, I'm sure. Yeah. So make okay. sure to check y'all's receipts for 55-gallon barrels. Yeah, or check your garages. Yeah, <laughs> your crawl space under your house. So Tony Emery had given Miller & Tug cash to purchase the bags of cement or concrete. So that nothing could be traced back to him. So once again, he was having everybody else do the dirty work. Okay. I'll do the dirty work. No, I'll do the dirty work as long as someone else. Do you remember that My Little Pony movie? Yes, (laughs) 100,000%. As long as someone else gets the snooze? Snooze? The snooze. I don't know. I don't know. Snooze? (laughs) Okay, so... Tony had offered Miller meth and a dis <laughs> I don't mean to laugh. I'm so sorry. I'm amazed at how many people accept payment in meth. I think oh. that's what I'm the most amazed at. Like yeah. no, this, I'm not laughing at that part. I'm laughing at this part. So Tony Emery offered Bobby Miller meth and a discounted gun <laughs> in exchange for his participation. So he didn't even give it to him. He just sold it to him for really cheap. God. So like who really, who really walked away with, you know what I mean? Like dude, the dude still had to spend money to be part of a murder scheme. I, you know, it's like, <laughs> it could be a cult. It, Rick might tell us it's a cult. Yeah. Dude, so the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, when they built the new stadium, they were telling us on this tour that when they built the new stadium, Who is it? Jerry Jones, I think the owner is, or whatever. So they had to dig up a whole bunch of ground because the stadium is kind of dropped down below, you know, surface level. He freaking turned around and sold that dirt back to the city of Arlington or Dallas or wherever they're actually located. Sold the dirt to the city so that they could use it for, like, their construction projects. And I'm like, people just think, like, that's why some people... Are wealthy and they are stay wealthy. wealthy. Yeah. Yeah. Because I would never think that way. No. I wouldn't sell dirt. I wouldn't be like, hey, here's your yeah. discounted gun. So, again, Tony offered um, meth and the gun to Bobby Miller for his participation. They initially thought about leering Christine to a rental property owned by Emory that was by a park. Mm. Do you remember that? I do remember park. Yeah, on the phone call. There, they thought about shooting Christine, but again, Emery was not the dumbest guy. He knew that that was too loud and would draw unwanted attention. Mm -hmm. Again, according to Steve Jackson in his book, Tony decided that they would, quote, beat her to death. Mm. In his confession, Miller continued sharing with investigators that on August 4th, 1990... As planned, they lured Christine to the house where Tony Emery, Tug, and Bobby Miller would be waiting. According to Miller, a short time after entering the house, he heard her scream, quote, stop hitting me. Why are you doing this to me? Stop. Mm-hmm. Miller and his accounts shared that he freaked out. And Tony then told him that he had changed his mind and for him to take the truck back to Tony's house and to wait for him there. Okay. And that's kind of where the confession ended for Miller because he was not a part of the actual murder. Right. right? So again, this is why this whole case can be kind of confusing is because pieces are scattered over Mm -hmm. a big timeline from like 85,000 different people. Right. So I'm just condensing it down to make it make sense. Right. Right. Okay. Along with the information that bobby miller gave investigators then spoke to ron coy who had by this point been released on parole remember he was arrested given seven years but he uh-huh. had been released on parole coy after speaking with his attorney agreed to testify against tony emory and share what he knew in exchange for immunity and in allowance for him to move to texas where he had a job lined up great he's probably my neighbor <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, investigators would get Tug's testimony as well, and they'd finally be able to piece together what had happened to Christine Elkins on the evening of August 4th. According to all of these different testimonies and accounts that were pieced together, when Christine arrived to the house, she was attacked by Tony Emery. She ended up falling down the stairs, but she survived. When she was at the bottom, she tried crawling away but Tony went down after her with Ron Coy to finish her off. It was reported that she was covered in blood and paint from the paint cans she had been climbing on in an attempt to escape. They had beat her to death with a flashlight and a metal pipe. They wrapped her up in a rug, put her in the, the trunk of her maroon Oldsmobile, They drove about 20 miles outside of Maryville to an area with a boat ramp on the Missouri River. Mm. So there's no rock quarries. This is the Missouri River. Uh Coy and Emery worked quickly in the dead of night. They ended up putting a tree branch between the steering wheel and the front seat and put a stick down on the pedal. They popped the Oldsmobile on the drive and watched it launch into the Missouri River with Christine's body in the trunk. Mm. Armed with new information and the general area and location of where Coy and Emery sank the car, Schmidt and the other law enforcement personnel working on the case knew that they had to find the car and in it, hopefully, the body of Christine Elkins. I wonder how many vehicles are just hanging out at the bottom of all these. You know what I mean? Mm hmm. Always makes me wonder. So they had to get the body, which was in the car, which was at the bottom of a huge river. They were like, we've got to get we've got to get it out. The problem with this plan is that it was really dangerous and incredibly difficult to execute. Mm hmm. There were not many individuals who would be capable of facing the raging Missouri River in hopes of finding Christine's vehicle. According to Gail Stewart's book, Underwater Forensics, the Missouri River is a large and dangerous place. It is a massive muddy river prone to massive floods. It's about a thousand feet across with a really fast current of about eight miles an hour, which is powerful enough to move heavy objects such as vehicles. Dang. I was going to see that's kind of what I kept thinking. I was like, I mean, from what I the very little that I know about the Missouri River, it is very fast moving. And I'm like, even if they dumped a car, I mean, there's no How do towing. you find, how far did it go down? How far did it go down? You know, right. and this has been seven years and I mean, there's, there's, this is, yeah, I'm like, good luck. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how, I mean, that's why I think I loved this case so much is because this shows the beautiful side of law enforcement and mm-hmm. interagency work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it just shows that if you if you don't give up and, and you you keep going and you find the right people, you can achieve a lot. And so that's where it's a good piece to this story, right. So investigators knew the body and any accompanying evidence might easily have been washed away, especially after six to seven years in the river, but they were determined to search. So they tried to do things on their own. They had cadaver dogs, divers, but they just weren't finding anything. So the investigators eventually turned to the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, so the NCIS, for help. Mm. They requested the use of a magnetometer, which measures changes in the intensity of magnetic fields of ferrous metals below ground or water. So it's like Mm. a giant magnet reader for iron. Cool. The NCIS in turn called the FBI... And they referred the investigators to a company called NecroSearch in Colorado. Huh. ATF agent Mike Schmidt and Maryville PD detective Randy Strong, who had been the primary investigators on the case by this time, contacted NecroSearch, which was the group. Of, so NecroSearch is a group of scientists and engineers who would often assist in difficult investigations that required their expertise in order to find clandestine graves. So, mm-hmm. hard to find graves where you wouldn't know where to look, right? Oh, okay. Despite NecroSearch's expertise and combined experience, this endeavor would prove to be, again, highly dangerous and terribly tricky, to say the least. Mm-hmm. NecroSearch's team of meteorologists, geophysicists, engineers, and divers, and others I mean, these are just like brilliant people who come together to do this stuff. They They should have called Rashad Jamal. He's also a metaphysicist. (laughs) Uh, He wouldn't because they were sixes. (laughs) I ain't working with that trash. That six trash. trash. Six-ass trash. So, NecroSearch, they were interested, but they needed to know tons of details in order to start this process. They and I'm just I listed all of the details that they were asking for just to show the magnitude of this um, what inquiry endeavor process yeah yeah so necrosearch asked yeah so necrosearch asked for the year make and model of the car the dimensions of the engine how much iron was in the engine. How much did the car weigh? How much of the car was comprised of iron? How long would the car float when first launched into the water? How fast the water in the Missouri River flowed? The depth of the suspected location at that area of the river? What time of night? What the weather conditions were? What was the lighting? One of the meteorologists had asked what the lighting was to better understand the visuals that the men were dealing with that night and what likely they would have done. Were the windows up or down because that would have affected how long the car float or sink and how quickly it would have been picked up by the river? What were the flow records for the Missouri River since August of 1990? Were there any flooding of the river and when... How much of the set, how much sediment is in the river? I mean, you know, my ignorant, dumb six having six ass, six ether, (laughs) six ether. Like when I thought about them searching the water for the car, I'm like, oh, yeah, you just like throw a diver in and you go search for a car and there it is. Like these questions, I am so far removed from this level of intellect from these professionals, I would never have even considered some of these questions. Right. I had a hard time answering like the riddles that I learned about in Miss Lovelace's junior AP class where it was like what starts on four legs, then goes to two legs, then to three. Oh yeah. And you're yeah. like, I have no idea. Like three days I later, didn't know I didn't know that the tides were controlled by the moon. Well, I know. And I found this out when I was in college in my physics class. And I remember Professor Heidi was talking about the moon and the tides. And I remember I literally snort, like, scoffed out loud because I thought she was kidding. Well, Bailey, you're also the person who thought that there was (laughs) chicken in the shaken bake box. And when you dumped it out, you were like, what the (laughs) (laughs) F is going on? I was gypped my chicken. god i also coming from the same person that i literally thought it was um pizzeria i, I thought know. it was pizzeria <laughs> and zach thought i was the when we were dating and he thought i was the funniest person he'd ever met because i said pizzeria and then finally realized that i was calling oh, a pizzeria shut up i was say, what are you saying right now pizzeria <laughs> and it never crossed my mind so hey but I'm you know not what a smart man but i know well what... hey but you know what you have a lot of letters after your name now so i do i have alphabet soup which makes me, me feel better it does it does so you showed all those people yeah you was smart oh. you was kind <laughs> you was important. important yeah stick around guys it's charity work by listening to our episodes Yeah, we should get a GoFundMe page. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, poor Bailey. Uh, Pizarria. Okay. So every single one of these questions were necessary to identify the search area that that would be impossible to do without understanding those questions, right? They had to narrow it down. Ultimately, NecroSearch would agree to be part of the team and help in the search for the Oldsmobile at the bottom of the Missouri River. Al Bieber and Clark Davenport were two head players from NecroSearch in this process. They narrowed down a potential location of the search and found that it wasn't too deep in the theorized area of where they think her car was going to be. It was maybe 20 to 30 feet deep, but it was about a thousand feet across the river in that area. So that was a lot of river to cover. Mm -hmm. The NecroSearch decided on using a magnetometer in the search process. So when the team members finally arrived in Missouri to begin the search for Christine's Oldsmobile, the Corps of Engineers were able to provide GPS locations to give precise locations of six or seven anomalies in the water. These were the possibilities of where Christine's car, and in it, hopefully, her body could be found at the bottom of the river. The Missouri State Water Patrol would send their divers, including Dennis Randall, for the search. And the Coast Guard would provide their support to sanction off the area of the river that would be searched. Have you heard of any episode that has included this many entities of, like, law enforcement and forensics? Like I said, this literally the whole time, I'm like, I think I've seen this episode on NCIS where they're like, this is not your jurisdiction. Yeah, Um, You know, and they're like, boop, 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 on their computers and... Like, this is wild. Yeah. So on July 26, 1997, Schmidt met the necrosearchmen at the airport, and they made their way to the Missouri River to begin the dangerous and cumbersome venture. The odds definitely were not in their favor, but this was literally the last shot they had at finding Christine's car, hopefully her body, and to bring Tony Emery to justice and to get justice for Christine. Mm Mm-hmm. Once there, after setting up, doing all they needed to do, crossing their T's, dotting their I's, the search was on. The team of necrosearch and law enforcement officials involved in the search quickly realized that the current was incredibly difficult to navigate. So as a safety precaution for the divers, a 1,000-pound weight was attached to a cable and a buoy was dropped nearby from a Coast Guard ship so that they could hang on to the line to help them navigate. However, the current was so strong that even the buoy was dragged under. Dang. So instead, in order to keep the divers more stable in the forceful currents of the Missouri River, they had to be strapped with heavy weights, and they were so heavy that they could barely walk. Mm -hmm. Nope. (laughs) this is where we conclude our episode thank you so much for listening thank you so much i no absolutely that's a thousand percent no for me yeah yeah so thousand percent no this and i'm gonna like i'm getting into the nitty-gritty of the what search for the car Mm -hmm. here because luke is one of these guys who does this stuff right yeah yeah and so I think it's important for you guys to hear, like, how crazy these situations are and how heroic people like Luke Jevney are who do what they do. hmm And I'm going to do a reminder that you listeners don't know, but you will know once you listen to the interview. Uh, this is volunteer work for Luke. Yeah. Like, these... Wow. Uh, he was like, a lot of times, this stuff is volunteer. Mm-hmm. Now, in this case, it sounds like there were, like, Coast Guard involved and stuff like that. But for a lot of them, it is literally volunteer hours. Yeah, because if the government doesn't fund it, then it's out of their own pockets. Exactly. So there were, again, there were about seven anomalies that the technology found, yeah, that fit the criteria of what they were looking for. As far as a magnetic disturbance that appeared large enough to be a car. After several attempts on the first day, they found nothing. Well, they found some things, but it was not what they were looking for. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right? Some involved in the process were deflated, but some were even more determined to find what they came to find. Mm -hmm. By 7 a.m. on day two, Dennis Randall and two of the other, other divers were already geared up and ready to search. After several attempts by the first two divers, they found nothing then dennis randall and in um jackson's book it's it's hysterical randall's like don't send boys to do a man's job and like puts his gear on and he is the he is the goat in this whole thing right he's like here hold my beer yeah he's like watch this guys so the third diver again dennis randall decided to get the job done so he goes under and he starts searching after hours and hours of searching, Randall found something. Mm-hmm. Unable to see in the murky water, Randall had to use touch. So he could not see. He had to use touch to explore the water and what appeared to be a vehicle. Mm-hmm. He did a swim around of the vehicle and it was a two door. Christine Elkins' car was a two door. Mm-hmm. In the pitch black water, Randall felt his way around the rest of the car, swam to the back, and located the still-attached license plate. And he was able to remove it. (laughs) Underwater, blind, this dude removes a license plate from a vehicle that's been underwater for like seven years. Shut up, man. Yeah. Whatever. I wish they would make like superhero series. Instead of it being like Superman and Batman, I wish it'd be dudes like this for kids. Like Dennis Randall? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, according, again, to Steve Jackson's book, the crew in the boat that was on standby was very nervous during the short time it took the diver to surface. By this time, by the time Randall surfaced, it was 1 p.m. They had been searching since 7 a.m. The teams waited on bated breath. When Randall came out of the water, one of the crew closest to him yelled, "B six O E six five two. He's got it." This was the license plate number of Christine Elkins's maroon Cutlass Supreme Oldsmobile. Gosh, shut up, man! That's Isn't that so crazy? Cool. That's so cool. Against all odds. Her car had been found after seven years. Investigators were in awe and thrilled that this team of divers were able to locate Christine's car. Investigators standing on the shore waited as her car was pulled from the depths of the Missouri River where it lived for the last seven years. Well, and I'm also kind of thinking, I wonder if you have to get divers to hook the The core. You like have the, to, what am I trying to say? The cables. Uh-huh. And from my understanding of reading this, it's literally like hours and hours and hours of getting this car out of the river. Oh, I, I can imagine. I can yeah. imagine. So investigators opened the trunk. Mm-hmm. And laying there wrapped in the rug she had been placed in six years earlier were the remains of Christine Elkins. The rumors were true. After six, seven years of mystery and being classified as a missing person, Christine had finally been found. Unfortunately, Christine's dental records had been lost, but she had broken her tailbone prior to her disappearance, and there were x-rays from that. Oh. So a forensic pathologist would end up using those x-rays to positively identify the body in the trunk as the body of Christine Elkins. Mm. She had been found and she had been positively identified. Dude, I will say that is one thing that I think is super interesting is like the dental forensics, um, Mm -hmm. how they can. I remember when I was in school, when I was in dental hygiene school, that we listened to a speaker. Who was like a forensic dentist, and that was how they were identifying a lot of the bodies that were involved in the Hurricane Katrina uh, catastrophe. Yeah. Is they, you know, they had so many bodies, um, and uh, they were resorting a lot of it to dental records. It's, yeah, yeah. So, maybe one day we can interview a forensic odontologist or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be super cool. Okay, I'm, now. Now that there was a body and tangible evidence that this missing person's case was now a homicide, investigators finally had what they need to lock up Tony Emery for good. They're coming for you, Tony. With Tug Emery, Bobby Miller, and Ron Coy's statements and testimonies, a federal jury agreed with investigators that Tony Emery was the primary responsible party for Christine Elkins's murder. His motivation to get rid of the federal informant so she couldn't testify against him for his drug charges. Mhm. So in 1997, Tony Emery's trial began. Tony Emery went on trial for murder and his cousin Tug Emery gave evidence for the prosecution. Now armed with Christine's body and the testimonies of these three men, Tony Emery was found guilty of the murder of Christine Elkins, a federal informant, and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, which is what investigators had been hoping to get. Mm -hmm. He is still currently incarcerated at the United States Penitentiary in Terre Haute, Indiana. Sorry if I said that wrong. He has since appealed the conviction, but was denied, so he will die in prison, which is a fitting end to him being such a bitch. I mean, I'm sorry. I I kind of agree. Yeah. I kind of agree. He's a menace. Menace to society. A menace to society. Don't be a menace to South Central while drinking your juice in the hood. That's right. Right. Or you're going to end up like Tony Emery in prison. Okay. Mm -hmm. His cousin Tug received 22 years in prison related to Christine's murder. He was held at the Federal Correctional Institution in Sandstone, Minnesota, but allegedly he was released after his sentence in 2016. For the life of me, I could not find... Like, when he was released, if for sure he was released, I just couldn't find it. Yeah. And if you go and Google this right now and you're guys like, I found it in three minutes, then, you know, remember, I didn't know that the tides were controlled by the moon, so don't be <laughs> surprised. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's probably working at a pizzeria somewhere. Yeah. Living his best life. Finally, by all reports, I wanted to end with, like, a pretty bow on all this stuff both of christine's sons grew up to be great young men oh yay though they were initially told that christine had abandoned them and run out of town thanks to the hard work of detectives they finally were able to learn the truth of their mother she did not run off and leave them she was murdered by tony Emery and discarded in the missouri river in hopes of disappearing forever The investigation of Christine Elkins' disappearance and murder was an exemplary example of interagency efforts between the Maryville Police Department, the ATF, the State Highway Patrol, the Notaway County Sheriff's Office, NecroSearch, and other agencies. There were hundreds of officials involved in one way or another over the seven-year search and thousands and thousands of man-hours by officials who sacrificed their time away from their family and loved ones to help find Christine and bring justice for her. They viewed her more than just an addict who got in trouble. They viewed her as a woman, despite her struggles, who was deserving of justice and being found and being able to be laid to rest and find peace at last. Yay. I'm so proud of you, Bailey, for giving me a case that I really, you knew that I needed. Yeah. I needed a sweet, even though it's a bittersweet case, I needed for everybody to get along and for the person to be found and for people to do the right things. Thank you. Yeah. Like, of course it's sad. But how easy would it have been for these law enforcement officials to be like, whatever, screw it. I mean, seriously. Well, and it's kind of cool. I was just thinking when you were talking about all the interdisciplinary and all the collaboration that happened, I was like, honestly, that could tie in to like Dr. Penn's interview, Dr. K's interview. And that's the one thing. Uh, that I think we are hearing, Bailey and I are hearing more and more and more during these interviews is how crucial it is to work together. Mm -hmm. And as cliche and as simple as that statement is, it really, it truly takes a village to get anything worth having done. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, like, I would get chills reading this about, like, how hard these investigators pushed. I mean, the reports of, like, Mike Schmidt, the ATF agent, like, he and D.A. Green would have, like, knockdown, dragout drag-out fights. I mean, they would go toe-to-toe, cuss each other out, storm out of offices. I mean, for years, this guy was just like, no, no. Like, we are not giving up. We're not doing this. And, I mean, they were talking about how like how much time they spent away from their families. I mean, they had other cases. Yeah. They had other cases that they were doing and but they were so dedicated to finding Christine and getting rid of Tony Emery that literally 7 years and hundreds of law enforcement officials worked together to to find her. She mm-hmm. was in a trunk in a car at the bottom of the Missouri River. And these amazing people, including these divers in this necrosearch team, were able to find this vehicle and find her body and lay her to rest. And I just, God, man, I'm just so impressed. It just makes me so proud of everybody involved. Right? That's so cool. I'm serious. Like, I really, if you are a, um, like a children's art uh, author, or if you're an illustrator or something, like... You guys need to start researching this stuff or let us research it. And then you guys can make a series of like superheroes based off of real life. Wow, that, I mean, that's these a good people, idea. That's a good idea. Yeah. I mean, seriously, though, because like this is truly something like this is a hero. This is something that you can tangibly grow up and model your life after. Yeah. Yeah. How cool is that? Like, good yeah. job, guys and gals. Yeah. So that is the really sad, but also really uplifting case of underwater criminal investigation, the use of underwater forensics, and solving the murder of Christine Elkins. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Like I said, and, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm obviously, I I hope no one thinks that we're being insensitive. Like, we obviously recognize that it is tragic. That a mother's life is cut short. But again, like at least, at least she's laid to rest properly. Her boys, like that warms my heart that her boys yeah. know. Cause don't you know that would had have been just like a hole in oh, them sure. for so long? Not knowing. Well, and you know how I am about like how protective I am about like my addicts and i don't mean that in a derogatory way but my people who struggle with addiction and i'm just so proud of people not being like oh she's just you know a junkie who she did this to herself like Uh nobody in that case thought of it that way Uh you know they thought of it as she is a, a valid worthy lovable human being who deserves to be found and i just love that so much yeah so Oh, well, like I said, thank you. Seriously, yeah. I don't think I say thank you very often because a lot of times I don't. I don't want to say thank you for these cases, <laughs> yeah, that's right? And I don't feel like lying. You to You're welcome. <laughs> and uh, and hopefully it. you guys can get this will pique your interest to listening to Friday's interview oh. with awesome Luke, dude. I like I said before, if you guys think our our cases are trash, that's fine but listen to our interviews yeah, because sure. these people are living, breathing. Like these people are heroes, man. Yeah. Like they're so awesome. 100%. Awesome. And your life is going to be better. If you're having a bad day, this will turn your frown upside, upside down. down. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for hanging out with us through this kind of warm and fuzzy, t- tragic, warm and fuzzy wild ride. Yeah. And well, and just like Christine, you are love, worthy, valuable, and we will catch you on the flip side. Bye guys. Hey Wildside Tribe, don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Wildside Podcast. Make sure to tune in on Wildside Wednesdays. New episodes will drop each Wednesday at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We would love to hear from you, so if you have a wild case recommendation, email us at wildsidepodcast at gmail.com. That's wildside with a C. Or share your thoughts in the comments below below. As always, if you haven't heard it today, you're loved, you're worthy, and you're valuable. And we'll catch you on the flip side.